Well, we ended last week in verse 50 where Jesus with a loud voice cried out. And we know from the other gospels, he cried out to Telestire, it is finished. And then he yielded up his spirit. It's clear that Jesus right to the very end was in control. Matter of fact, John chapter 10, Jesus was very adamant, adamant on this point. He says in John 10, 17, 18, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes my life, takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself, and I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again, this command I've received from my Father. In Ezekiel, it says, the soul that sins shall surely die. Jesus never sinned. So how is it that he died? He did die because of sin. But it was your sin that put Christ to death. I was in Israel oh, some years back. And just sort of one of those divine moments. We were in one of these kibbutz stores and all these special eccentric uh, hand and foot oils and, and the people in our group were going crazy buying it at this uh, discounted rate. I had been to Israel many times, so I've been there, done that. Um, I just was standing by the cashier and she was a young girl, probably in her early 20s, mid 20s maybe, and uh, asked her a couple questions and she just started pouring out her life. She was born into this kibbutz, a millionaire because the, the kibbutz had been done so well over the decades that she basically had a trust fund, more money than she could do with all her life. She wasn't running a cash year. She wasn't running the cash register for money. It was just something to do. But right out of high school, she traveled the world. She, she did all the partying. She saw everything, did everything. And after a couple of years of that, she came back to Israel in complete depression. She was just so empty. And uh, I began to tell her about Christ and I got to the part of him dying and, and before I could get to the resurrection, just very, very deeply feeling it, she said, did we kill Jesus? Referring to the Jews. And I said, no, it wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. It was all of us individually did indeed put Jesus to death. He willingly, as the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world, bore all of our sin, from the first sin of Adam to the last sin committed. Yes, all the sins of Hitler and Mussolini and Ted Bundy, all the most despicable, wicked, vile things that we don't even want to mention, Jesus bore them all. And he paid the price. The Bible says he ransomed. That is a word where a guy is bought out of slavery. He pays the full price to the owner of the slave. And then after he owns the slave, he turns the slave free. Jesus took us, bought us out of our slavery. He did it willingly. There wasn't a moment that he couldn't have called all the angels out of heaven to deliver him. Jesus could have spoke a word and been delivered. All pain, all suffering would have stopped. That's made it much, much harder. 
The other two thieves, they couldn't get out of their situation. But Jesus, with every hit of the face, with every lash of the whip, he could have ended it. He had the power to stop it. But his love for us kept him going, knowing that one day that we could be made righteous as Jesus is righteous, have eternal life now. Where if you're a born-again believer, eternal life already started. You who believe will never die. We'll leave this body and we'll, we'll sense the effects of that. It's an involuntary muscle not to stop breathing and not to stop fighting for life. But once that involuntary muscle stops and we breathe our last, not even a fraction of a second goes by. And Jesus is there smiling at us, stroking our forehead, put it, pushing our hair back, giving us a hug, saying, welcome into the kingdom. St. Augustine said it the best. He said, he, Jesus, gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. Nobody took his life. He gave his life. What did Jesus accomplish in doing this? In Isaiah 53, 11, it says this, By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. There it is. He'll justify many. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But some people are so prideful. They're so hard-hearted. They're so self-willed. Even though their conscience is bearing an accusation condemning them, knowing that they are wicked and sinners, they will not bend the knee to say, Lord, take my sin away by the work of the cross. But those who do, he'll take it away. The word iniquity in Isaiah 53 is our lust. We have no intentions on sinning, but this happened and that happened. And then the next thing I know, I'm doing something I, I hate and it's destructive. First Peter chapter two, verse 24 says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. Our sins, this is the word transgression. This is where I clearly know this is wrong. There's no doubt about it. I'm standing on the right side right now. I see the big giant black line that I have to cross to go over into that sin. And I am willfully doing it. And I'm conscious about it. I've thought about it. I've wrestled not to do it. But the day comes where I just say, I know it's wrong. Maybe I know it could cost me my health or my marriage or my job, or it could, but I'm just going to walk across it in rebellion. Jesus took away our iniquities, but Jesus also took away our transgressions. So the timing of these events, when you look at the Gospels, I, I'd like to make it clear in your minds before we move forward. In Mark 15, 25, it says Jesus was crucified at the third hour, that's 9 a.m. in the morning. So Jesus was taken from the jailhouse, taken down the Via Della Rosa, the path of suffering. They ripped out his beard. They threw things at him. They spit on him. He got to the place called Golgotha, probably the main roads between east and west and north and south that everybody could see it. Interesting that on the hillside behind him, 
the hill itself had sort of deteriorated and made itself look like a skull. And it is like that today, even though some have tried to destroy it. Um, who didn't, who don't like Christianity, you can still see it to some degree. But then in Matthew 27, 46, we saw that at the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that is noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness all over the land. So Jesus has seven sayings upon the cross. He was pierced in seven places, seven being the number of completion, eight the number of new beginnings. And so for three of the six hours that Jesus was on the cross, it was in complete darkness in his sayings. So we see he was there for six hours. At the end of that time of darkness, probably still in mostly darkness, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then it says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And at that very moment, we discover a number of miracles happen, not just the darkness that covered the whole earth, I believe, but the veil of the temple was torn. There was an earthquake, rocks split, and some raised from the dead. Look at this in verse 51 with me. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquake, the rock split. The, this curtain that separated the temple, the outer temple for all the priests could be, into the one little room called the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest would go in once a year, and that's what the blood sacrifice, he would pour it upon the mercy seat, which is the Ark of the Covenant. This curtain is thick. They say up to about six inches thick. The height of it, it varies. We know the tabernacle was one thing, but then Herod's temple was another. Herod built a most elaborate temple. Some say that that curtain was about 60 feet high. So for a man to get that high up and to rip it, such a thick curtain, not going to happen. And then it says after the earthquake and the rock split that the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So that bell of the temple rents in two. You've got to understand this, this would be the most horrific thing ever seen. These priests that were not even supposed to look into the Holy Holies, it's open to everybody to gaze upon. The Jewish tradition tells us that the high priest had to go through a big ceremony to be right with God before he went into the Holy of Holies. And even then, they would tie a rope around his leg and bells all over his priestly garments in case he wasn't presentable and he died. How would you get him out? You know, the next guy goes in to get him out, he dies. Next guy, and all of a sudden, you got this pile of bodies and nobody can get him out. So they would drag him out. I don't think they ever had to use that. But that's what they had come up with. This was the most amazing curtain the Bible tells us that in the making of it, that God's Holy Spirit came upon the artisans of the tabernacle and all things in it and gave them supernatural wisdom on how to make this curtain. 
Josephus saw it, the great Roman historian. And he actually gives us a description of it. Before these doors was a veil equal largeness with the doors. It was embroidered with blue and fine linen, scarlet and purple, and contexture that truly wonderful. This mixture of colors has its mystical interpretation, but it was a kind of image of the universe. For by the scarlet that seemed to be signified fire, by the fine flat the earth, and by the blue the air, and by the purple the sea. This curtain had also embroidered upon it all that was mystical in the heavens. Wow. Guys, we're going to go to heaven. <laughs> a new heavens and a new earth. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 said, not one word. I can't tell you one word. Because there is no words on earth to describe what I saw. And for me to even try to describe with one word what I saw, it would be like blasphemy. It would sound like cursing. It was so magnificent. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for us. The writers of Hebrews tells us what that veil was all about. As he's explaining to us the Old Testament and, and the, the various covenants and even the building of the tabernacle, he says this in Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by all of us as believers, now priests of God, go into the Holy of Holies. How? By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. What did that beautiful curtain represent? It represented the incarnation of Christ. It represented the one day that the Son of God would come into human flesh, and as a man, he could be our substitute. As God, he could eternally forgive everybody of all different time periods, past, present, and future. And that, when Jesus said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, rip! Jesus ran over and said, no more is anybody going to be separated from the holiest of holies. Don't forget, guys, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's not a ring we put on. It's not a cloak we put on. It becomes our very new nature. They asked John, what will it be like when we go to heaven? He goes, I don't know, but I know that when we see him, we will be just like him. And everyone who meditates on this now in your earthly condition, it will have a purifying effect upon you now. There you go. Hide God's word heart in your heart every day. You won't sin against them. But here's how to way to even grow in holiness. Picture yourself in that robe of righteousness, standing next to Jesus and looking exactly like him in righteousness. It almost sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? I'm going to to Jesus in righteousness. This is what the Bible declares, not because we are by merit, but because we are by gift. He's given us the gift of righteousness and of eternal life. And so not a second was wasted. I mean, Jesus could have waited till he raised from the dead, right? And on the third day, 
at the moment Jesus raised from the dead, the veil of the temple was ripped. That, that makes sense to me, doesn't it to you? I think that was the plan. But Jesus is like, no way, I'm not going to wait three days. <laughs> Rip. <laughs> I don't want anybody separated, not even a fraction of a second longer. The moment he breathes his last, boom, that temple, that, that curtain was rent, saying, come on in. Everybody who believes, come on in. I do believe this is why it tells us in Acts 6-7 that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Not very long after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we know the 3,000 souls that got saved in one day, but not too long after that, a few weeks after Christ had risen from the dead, many of those Jewish priests that hated him probably spit on him, definitely thought he was some kind of heretic, they became believers. And one commentary makes it mention because of this veil that was rent and the timing in which it was rent. Then there was an earthquake and the rock split. Remember earlier on when Jesus was coming in on Palm Sunday and the priest came to Jesus saying, tell those people to quit worshiping you. And Jesus said, if I stop them, the rocks will cry out. And here Jesus breathes his last and the rocks, the very earth in which he created, the whole thing begins to cry out at the death of Jesus. And then Matthew tells us probably one of the strangest stories in the Bible. This is the only place it's mentioned. But evidently, a whole bunch of Lazaruses raised from the dead. Remember just a week earlier before Jesus went to the cross, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And now, here, when Jesus breathed his last, some of these people, this is my speculation, that had not been dead more than a few days, the Lord raised them from the dead as a witness. And they were risen from the dead, and I guess they stayed around the graveyard, or I don't know, but after Jesus raised from the dead, then they were permitted to go and say hi to their families and maybe like Lazarus, live out the rest of their life before they would die. I don't know. That's, that's the way I picture it. Um, some, some say that these were people that were going to go to be with the Lord in heaven, but they just got to stop by for a minute to uh, confirm in the story that Jesus truly is the Messiah. I don't know. That's as far as the story goes. But a very interesting story it is. Well, in verse 54, when the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, he saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, and they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. This hardened centurion, who had probably seen hundreds maybe thousands of crucifixions. The Romans were doing it like crazy. But yet this was different. In Mark 15, 39, it says, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he had cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this is, truly this was the Son of God. So we saw the thief that had been cursing Jesus stopped it and believed and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you'll be with me in paradise. 
And now this centurion who is just uh, doing another couple, you know, doing another few executions. What are you doing today? Uh, the usual. I'm going to go nail some people to the cross. You know, sort of boring now. But this wasn't a boring day. When he saw that Jesus didn't die like everybody else died. When he heard of the sayings, no cursing, no swearing, no bits of anger and and revenge against those who were crucifying Christ, but only words of love and kindness, and even asking the Father forgive them. This Roman soldier became a believer. He only got one thing wrong. When Jesus died, he didn't understand the resurrection. He said, oh man, I wish that guy didn't die. I finally get it. <laughs> he's the son of God, but he's dead. Too bad. I didn't get to talk to him before he died. Because he said, Jesus, he was the son of God. No, 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 no. Jesus' death on that cross did not make it a past tense. The right tense would be is. He is still the son of God. And in verse 55 and 56, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking from afar. Now, if you're from back south, that sounds like there's a fire going on. No. From afar. No, no, not from a fire, from afar, from a distance. So, to all my Oki relatives, from a distance, let's just add that in there. So many of the women followed Jesus to Galilee, ministered to him, were there looking from a distance, and among whom were Mary Magdalene, the Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Wow. Maybe you remember the story back in, Luke 8, 2, this lady who was out of her mind, she was possessed with seven demons. Jesus cast the demons out and healed her, and that lady followed and ministered unto Jesus continuously. That word minister is the word doulos, where we get, it's a servant. She, she was a servant serving Jesus in physical ways. And then, interesting, we see then this Mary of Magdalene. She's an unmarried woman, yet she represents salvation. The, the Mary, the mother of James the Lesser, as we call him, he's not the Peter, James, and John, that one, a different James, the Lesser, and Joseph, his brother, she identifies them with her children. The second Mary is identified with her children. And then the third Mary, the mother of Zebedee's sons, She's identified with her husband, the sons, uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Various categories these women come from, but yet they all came to honor Jesus to the very end. Bravely, unlike the disciples. We really think about it. Look at the variety of people that were observing Jesus at the cross. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, high class, no class, religious, unreligious, guilty, innocent, haters of Jesus, lovers of Jesus, oppressors and the oppressed, weepers and mockers, educated and uneducated, the deeply moved and the indifferent, different races, different nationalities, different languages, different classes, but yet Jesus' life touched them all. Remember those words of Jesus back in John 12, 32? And if I be lifted up from the earth, what will happen? I will draw all peoples to myself. And indeed he is. 
even at the cross, but of course in heaven for sure. In Revelation 7, 9, a futuristic scene of heaven. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number in Revelation 7, 9, of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Isn't that interesting? That one of the things that's going to be, one of the earthly things that's going to be going to heaven is our nationality and our language. I think we're going to have another heavenly language. But the Lord created these various languages because they're beautiful to him. You got to travel the world and hear people worship in various languages. It, it, is, it is amazing. It truly is beautiful to hear in variety. Well, moving along in verse 57 to 61. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus, and Pilate commanded to the body to be given to him. The other gospels tell us that first Pilate said, he's already dead, it's only been six hours. One commentary says the guy researched every crucifixion he can find, and the earliest anyone ever died was 32 hours. Often, guys would, would make it 13 days. So the fact that Jesus died after six hours tells us how badly he was beaten by the whip and with the fist. And he gave him the body. In verse 59, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a linen, a clean linen cloth in his new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock and he rolled a large stone against the tomb the door of the tomb and departed and Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb this guy Joseph of Arimathea we learn a lot about him in the scriptures in Mark 15 43 it tells us he was a prominent member of the council. He was one of the 70 Sanhedrins. In Luke 23, 51, tells us that he did not consent with their decision and action concerning Jesus. In Mark 15, 43, it tells us that he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the Messiah. In Luke 23, 50, it referred to him as a good and upright or a righteous man. In John 19, 38, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So this guy was the disciple of Jesus as much as the other disciples, but he did it undercover, secretly. And of course, all of this was to happen because in Isaiah 53 9 it says they made his grave with the wicked the two thieves on each side but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was deceit in his mouth so this very wealthy guy who was having a tomb made for himself probably out of pure rock it wasn't ready yet but it was ready enough for one person. These tombs would be made out of gigantic rocks and they would make a place for everybody in the family to lie. And this particular one wasn't finished, but yet the rock and everything was ready and 
They put Jesus in the tomb. They had a giant rock and they rolled it in front of that tomb. And so he died at 3 p.m. He was crucified from 9 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon, six hours. And then before the sun would set, because of its, again, a holy days right now during this Passover season, the sun was going down at 6 o'clock. They only had three hours. And typically it took a whole day to prepare somebody's body for burial the way they did it. But they had to do a shortened version of it very quickly and get it sealed up before 6 o'clock. And um, <clears throat> John 19, they give us a much greater detail. In John 19, 39 to 42, and Nicodemus, another secret official, a rich man, who John 3 came to Jesus by night. So Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing the mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices and the customs of the Jews to bury. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And there they laid Jesus because the Jews, the Jews of preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So when we go to Israel today, we see the place of Golgotha. And right next to it is this beautiful garden. It's called Gordon's uh, tomb is what it's called today, or the garden tomb. And they have made it a beautiful garden again. You can take a tour around, and at one point of the tour, you look right next to it, and you see where Jesus would have been crucified. So they couldn't carry him, because again, it was Sabbath rules. They couldn't carry him a long distance. And so this worked perfectly as the Lord had prophesied a thousand years earlier. Interesting that Jesus' disciples who were willing to, to be recognized with Christ in his life, all his disciples were hiding. <laughs> but yet these two men who were afraid to make themselves known as Jesus' disciples during Jesus' life, but now, when it's much more dangerous to be associated with Jesus, are openly saying, hey, I am his follower. So Joseph and Nicodemus, by these acts, were definitely cutting themselves out from Jewish life after this point. So to go to Pilate saying, I want his body. I want to bury this guy. I want to honor this guy. And Pilate's going, wow, I thought you guys, you Sanhedrin, thought this guy was an evil, horrible man who deserved to be crucified. And now you want to honor him? You want to give him an expensive new place to be buried? They definitely came out of the shadows and made it clear of their devotion to Christ. Jesus in Mark 8, 35 to 38, a great word for all of us. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory with his Father and with the holy angels. Jesus said there aren't secret, they're not secret followers. <laughs> We've got to be willing to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, even if it costs us everything, the world and, and our comforts and our riches and even our life. 
And this large stone, it would have taken about 14 men to move this giant stone. And these ladies didn't leave Jesus even after he died. They hung around. They were spies. In Luke 23, 55, it says, The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body had been laid. It wasn't properly finished because we're going to see these ladies coming out to the tomb with all the proper oils, hoping somebody will move the stone so they can do Jesus' bodies right after the time of the festivals. Well, finishing up here in verse 62 to 66. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come up, come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. First, see, they come to him and they honor Pilate. Oh, sir, this is a, a term of respect and honor. This wicked Roman king, they give all prestige to. But the true king of kings, they gave him no honor. And these guys knew. Jesus said he was going to die. Now that, let's take a moment and think about that. Because some people thought, well, if this is the Messiah, then he can't die. And the fact that he died says that he's no better than Buddha or Muhammad or any of the rest. But Jesus prophesied that he would die, that he would come into this world as the lamb that would take away the sin of the world. And, and as people for thousands of years would come to the temple with a lamb and they would take that little lamb all the family would put their hands upon the lamb's head and as their hands were on the lamb's head the priest would slit its throat and they would feel the life go out of that little lamb and then they would take and prepare that lamb as a sacrifice for their sins Jesus came. He said, yes, I'm going to die. I'm going to be the one that whoever puts their hands upon this sacrifice will have eternal life. But then they also knew very plainly, better than the disciples. It's interesting, when Jesus raised from the dead, they were all like, what, he raised from the dead? You're kidding. We didn't, we didn't know that was a part of it. Oh, I guess he sort of mentioned that. He mentioned that continuously. Even these guys who were hardly ever around knew the facts that Jesus said he would raise again on the third day. They were certain something was going to happen. Interesting. The disciples, now nothing's going to happen. These haters of Jesus, something's going to happen. we got to prepare in advance and be ready. And what they did is had Roman guards. The seal of Rome meant that if anybody moved that stone, they would be put to death. And if any of the guards allowed somebody to move that stone, they would be put to death. So this is serious business. And um, Jesus is dead, but the chief priests, Sadducees, Pharisees were still concerned about the power of his influence. Isn't that interesting? They knew 
that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, but somehow his body was moved or tampered with, that just that alone would completely unravel things. And of course, if he really did raise from the dead, that could change the course of history. And indeed, it did. We look as we finish up here, all the obstacles man tries to put in the way, they won't work. All of man's efforts will fail. The material obstacles won't stand before the resurrected Jesus. The human authority won't stand before the resurrected Jesus. Or the human strength won't stand before the resurrected Jesus. And next Sunday, we are going to see the most marvelous story in the Bible, the resurrection. And it's good we're outside. We'll pretend it's Easter. We'll pretend we're having an Easter uh, sunrise. It's rising somewhere at 930 in the morning, right? Lord, we come before you right now, and we ask that you would take these scriptures, Lord, as we just line upon line, precept upon precept, here or there, a little bit, just going through the scriptures, let them pierce our hearts. Let them abound, Lord, into us. Give us faith. You said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We thank you that those who were so indifferent, like the thief and the centurion, and of course, many of those priests that were very much against it, we see as we work our way through the book of Acts that all believed. People in heaven, the thief, the centurion, these priests in heaven, because of the reality of your death and your resurrection. And Lord, I thank you for paying for all my sins, even the ones I haven't yet committed. You took all my future sins on you. That if we confess our sin, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, sins we don't even know about. We didn't even catch. We didn't even pass through our mind. We didn't even get convicted in our hearts. But yet there were sins before a holy God, even those you washed us from, not yet even knowing them ourselves. And if you're here today and you need that cleansing of Jesus, guys, it's 2020 here today because Jesus Christ was born and grew up and lived and died and rose again in Israel. The entire dating system of the world revolving around Jesus today. And the Bible has right now, this very moment in August, calling some of you by name, saying you've been indifferent. At times you've been even opposed. Your heart's hard. But the Lord is calling to you right now. Please, I love you. Let me wash you clean. Let me make you righteous. Let me write your name in the Lamb Book of Life. And all you have to do is say, yes, Lord, I'm willing. There's no special words. No tears are necessary. Just faith. Yes, Jesus, I believe you are Lord. You are God. You are Savior. That you died and rose again for me. Cleanse me now. Take all my sin away and, and continue to cleanse me till the day I see you face to face. I come into your hands. Take me, Lord. Take my life and be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, 
come up and talk to one of myself or one of the leaders here and let them know you prayed that prayer. We'd love to talk to you and get you started in some good Christian foundation material. If you prayed that prayer today out online, uh, somewhere on the social media, or maybe even days or years from now, this is still an appointed time for you. Ask the Lord to come into your life and tell somebody and say, what do I do next? All you do next is start reading the Bible and obeying it and doing what it says. Well, God bless you all. Have a wonderful day.